0: Welcome to Queers & Co, the podcast on self-empowerment, body liberation and activism for queer folks and allies. I'm your host, Jem Kennedy. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm a transformational practitioner and coach living in the UK. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Queers and Co. We ended up having an impromptu integration week last week because my week got really busy and normally I schedule the episodes but I just for some reason didn't quite get to it and decided to take a pause and release it this week instead. So for the next three weeks now there will be an episode each week and then that will be the end of the second series. It feels really good to be releasing this episode on this day Um, I have spent the day at the cabin which is the self-directed setting that I have talked about in other episodes before and I work there now one day a week and it's just the best Um, To as I record this I've got my face painted from one of the awesome children there they gave me a rainbow and clouds and sparkly flowers and I'm just feeling so lucky to be able to do that work and hang out with cool people So talking of cool people my guest today is someone who is awesome and (laughs) maybe I'll be a bit more descriptive than that. Um, So they are a non-binary queer iconoclast who always has too many projects on the go. They're the founder and director of The Garden which is a self-directed learning community for young people in Bristol. They also work for the Phoenix Education Trust on the Freedom to Learn programme and they're also a drag king, stage manager and queer cabaret producer. Plus, they founded the UBI Lab Bristol campaign, so I will add the link in um, to the show notes. If you'd like to go and support the petition, then please go ahead and do that to encourage a universal basic income trial in Bristol. If you hadn't guessed, they live in Bristol with their partner and children and finally feel like a real grown-up now they have a piano and a dog. So please allow me to introduce you to the wonderful Artemis D. Bear. Hi, Artemis. How are you? Hi, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm really excited. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm looking forward to chatting. Um, there are so many cool things to cover. We've just been talking about them, so I want to like get involved.
1: <laughs> Great.
0: Um, okay, so I always ask people at the beginning just to introduce themselves. Would you be happy to do that?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, I'm Artemis D. Bear. I am the founder of the Garden, which is a self-directed and consent-based uh, learning community for young people in Bristol. Um, I am also the co-founder of UBI Lab Bristol which is campaigning for a um, universal basic income uh, trial in the city. I am also a drag king. Um, I go by the name of Kurt Sylvain although not doing an awful lot of performing at the moment Uh, but I also am a show producer and stage manager.
0: Cool thank you so much. Um, Okay so I guess one of the first things I mentioned to you was like, and I think we've had a similar, um, I hate the word journey, but like a similar journey in um, some ways. So I'm just really intrigued to hear how it's been for you. And that's around um, kind of moving how your life has shifted through parenthood and like what you've ended up doing since, because I'm guessing that when you were um, an engineering student and then working in um, environmental services, did you say? or uh, working...
1: Yeah, I worked in climate change policy
0: okay um and i wonder if i guess that is kind of similarly aligned with social justice stuff but i'm just intrigued to hear like how that has been for you that whole your whole life basically
1: <laughs> uh okay all right I'll, I'll try and be as concise as i can but it's it's, quite, <laughs> it's definitely a bit of a story so i was working on climate change policy um in london uh before i had kids and uh it was it was really important to me and i i was looking at um the science and I was looking at what government were doing and I was looking at behavior and I was thinking well this isn't this isn't going to work something has to change uh, Oh, oh dear <laughs> this is really this is, and I had to be honest I had a bit of a breakdown because I just couldn't cope with like facing all of this on a daily basis it was, it was a lot um and I left and moved to Bristol um when I was pregnant with my eldest child and um and I suppose I started off by when she was born, I was really like I had a quite a traumatic birth with my eldest child. Um I had an emergency section and I had a quite a long recovery and I used that time essentially to to read up about um parenting because I felt really unprepared for being a parent <laughs> I'd read loads about pregnancy and birth and suddenly I had this little baby and I just didn't know what to do um and I didn't think I was going to be particularly good at it so <laughs> uh but I also didn't want to read parenting books because I had this uh, yeah I sort of knew that they were mostly opinion rather than anything that would actually be terribly useful to me so what I did was I read about lots of neuroscience and child development and child psychology um, and out of that I sort of came to this idea I sort of found my way with it basically and you know doing what worked for our family as well and as time went on I realized that that my way of parenting was completely incompatible with particularly the behavior management in schools and that was what led me to looking to alternatives really and um and the more I looked into it the more it became the behavior management was the most driving force but actually I realized that not only was the behavior management not very well evidenced but so neither was the education side of things Uh, so I looked into home education which I was like I loved and we were part of the home education community from when my eldest was two and a half which was which was great but there for me there felt like there was something there was something a bit missing uh I wanted like a solid community and that's what schools do do really well is having this solid community and um, there was loads of socializing there was loads of because I'm in Bristol and there's so many home educators here so we could you know go to something every day or multiple things every day and still not do everything there is to do for home educators um but um it was there was a lot of travelling around by car which I wasn't too keen on and it felt transient. It felt like and it and it felt like like if people fell out with each other, which happened a lot, like they would just avoid each other and go to different activities. And I kind of wanted somewhere that my kids could, you know, be in the community and if they if there was issues that there was a space held for them to resolve it rather than just avoid. <laughs> just avoid it uh while recognizing that sometimes avoiding is also completely the right thing to do but yeah it's just if that's always the default then I felt like maybe there needed to be a, another option really um so gradually this idea of a learning community came together um and it was also sort of well yeah there, there was a, definitely a part of me that was sort of thinking back to my time working in climate change policy, because I went through this journey of thinking, right, okay, we've got we've got to change something, we've got to do something differently. Um, and I realised that it wasn't just the government that was the problem, it was actually our system of government that was the problem. So even if the Green Party got into power tomorrow, we still wouldn't be able to fix climate change it's because of the, all the structural things in place that would prevent it. Um, so... that's pretty hard changing a system of government that's pretty tough um and in order to do that I realized that you need to change our culture and I was like wow that's that's even harder than changing a system of government (laughs) um so yeah and and then wow yeah changing culture that's a big challenge but there is a shortcut which is education (laughs) so there was a part of this that was sort of in the back of my mind and fermenting away as well Um, Yeah, so social justice has always been a fundamental part of of the garden from before it existed, really.
0: Yeah. And for anyone who isn't familiar with the garden, how would you describe it?
1: Uh, It's um, a self-directed and consent-based learning community for young people. So um, the young people have an equal say to the adults. And they get involved in decision-making at all levels. Um, and they decide what they learn, how they learn it, and when they learn it. And uh, we have a, we don't use any punishment or praise. We just talk about everything endlessly, which sometimes feels like a punishment. <laughs> 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 um, uh, uh, and we have a system of conflict resolution that is... Uh, I realised recently has a name, because we we started off using nonviolent communication. Um, well, our assistant was based on nonviolent communication and restorative practice, um, and then we realised that it wasn't quite doing what we needed it to, because it, it didn't have an awareness of power dynamics. Basically, so if somebody was particularly verbally skilled, they could easily get the upper hand and. Um, And it it meant that that skewed things quite a lot and it could be gamed quite a lot. So we started introducing this awareness of power dynamics into the conflict resolution and not just the conflict resolution, but everything that we do, sort of pointing out power dynamics whenever we see them. And that definitely works a lot better. And then last year, um, particularly with all the talk um, around Black Lives Matter and defunding the police, I became aware of that there's a term for it, which is transformative justice.
0: Awesome. Yeah, that's so cool to be able to bring that into a space and like really invite young people to engage in that and practice it from such an early age. Because I don't know about you, but I was um, definitely not equipped for conflict when I was brought up. Like it was just not appropriate at all to talk about conflict. It was just, you know, something you had to move away from as soon as possible and just be nice. Um, So yeah, it can be really confronting to to try and do things differently.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely amazing to see like really young people like skillfully mediate conflict absolutely incredible
0: I feel like this is something that we could talk about quite a lot because I'm really engaging in it a lot at the moment and thinking about what that means in my life um but I guess one of the one of the themes or like one of the branches that comes or that brings conflict potentially, or like helps me to see it in a different way is queerness and like existing within, um, I guess like a social justice type um, paradigm for want of a better description. Um, So I wonder how your queerness kind of, is in relationship with the work that you do at the garden that's something um for anyone who's listened before i also work at the cabin which is a similar setting and that's something that we're really talking about at the moment like how we engage with queerness in the setting but also um yeah the relationship between like showing up as our full selves, being able to be ourselves in spaces rather than, I guess, in the main sort of education system, you're maybe nowadays allowed to be quietly gay, but not actually like share your life experience or, you know, talk about it more openly.
1: Oh, there's so many things I want to dive into there. I know. Uh, so, 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 first of all, so I did a PGCE last year, and um, and I, and I, I use they them pronouns, and so my my title is mix, and um, and I was very open about that from when I went into my school placement. Um, and it was really interesting, actually. The school, the school were great about it; they're really good, really? and and the the teachers couldn't get their heads around mix at all and my pronouns and but they were tr- they did try but they did yeah they, they were, they were bit, the children were great though the children just like oh that's that's the pronouns okay then I got it like it's, it's that was amazing I did quite like being mix bear that was yeah that's cool <laughs> I <know. laughs> although I objected I objected to the principle of them not being able to use my first name mixed bear is a pretty cool yeah, pretty cool to be referred to. I enjoyed that. <laughs> um, but so this is the real nitty gritty of everything that we do. Is um, It really does all come down to social justice, really, because I think that all systems of oppression are... The one that underpins them all is childism. That's where we erroneously learn that some people have a right to control others. That's where it all comes from. So if you are part of an oppressed group... I think you need to be concerned with childism, <laughs> like it's how we learn to, that's how we learn oppression, that's how it gets propagated um and and in education, particularly, we know that when children go to school, their ability to think morally. Decreases. So, like young children, preschool age children show like show moral thinking. When they go to school, their moral thinking dips and only comes back up again when they're older. <laughs> so it just goes to show what that's actually doing to children when you put them into a, an environment that has rigid rules and this, um, like dichotomy of right and wrong. It's 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 harmful for them and their ability to make moral decisions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that really struck me, particularly moving into like more queer um, community, was that there was often, or I have often experienced sort of a disregard of children. And, um, you know, there have been, if I'm being really honest, like people who wouldn't be interested in dating someone who has children. um, And know and not willing to kind of engage with with children and obviously that's not everyone that's just um I noticed that and was kind of surprised by that and I think you're right um in that like if if anyone can't understand oppression or feels like they don't understand oppression if they just think back to their childhoods then I'm pretty sure they'll get an understanding of how that feels because there are very few people that have been brought up without that power dynamic um Yeah. And it's almost like if people aren't engaging with that and thinking about the way that they engage with children, any children they might have in their lives, then, yeah, there's, I don't know, it just doesn't feel like part of a complete picture. It's more like, you know, we want, uh, for example, um, queer people or neurodivergent people or people of colour to have rights and not to be oppressed, but not children. It doesn't match up.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's really common for like in queer communities to say, oh, I don't like children or even I hate children. That's really common. And I always pull people up on that um, because that's, you know, you would never say that about any other group. And I totally understand why people might find children to be hard around and particularly for queer people, because lots of us had not very positive experiences with other children when we were children and um, so I totally understand that but I think the problem wasn't necessarily the children the problem was the um, children within an authoritarian structure that is they're, they're just replicating these these power dynamics and these hierarchies that that's all that's all they know
0: yeah absolutely yeah and oh I have so many questions <laughs> um, so I think, thinking back to our own childhoods as well i i don't know about you but i noticed because i used to teach english to um speakers of other languages and they were generally sort of people between the ages of like 10 and 18 um and i remember when i first started teaching actually being really triggered by children sort of talking amongst themselves or um you know doing things that as my child self i would have perceived to be threatening um just because of like finding school really difficult and social stuff at school um and it was a real like conscious unlearning of you know that is not what's going on here and like re sort of re-parenting myself and I think also just re-evaluating how I understood children and that I wasn't in that situation anymore Um, and it's a really interesting thing you say around people having experiences maybe of children and kind of carrying those into later life or maybe associating children with like a cishet kind of normative society and that being something that they really want to get away from.
1: Yeah, that's a huge element of that as well. But I think that's, a, again, that's like a, it's a slight misdiagnosis of the issue. And I think the issue there is that, like, children are seen as segregated from society, families are segregated from society rather than integrated, um, which is a really big problem. I think, like, we have to have, like, children have to be a part of society. Like, it's, it's just a massive problem from so many directions. <laughs>
0: yeah and that's something that people often have um a criticism of home education around, isn't it that children aren't um, aren't out living life they're not in school like meeting other children and mixing with other children. But one of the things that I always kind of say to people is, well, how normal is it to be in a room with like thirty people who are all the same age as you and not be able to like go and meet other people as and when and engage in whatever you want to do? I think that our children, certainly my children are like out and about making relationships with people in all sorts of different ways and have friends of all ages I remember being scared to talk to people who are older than me and, f- and feeling like I was better than people younger than me at school um so yeah it's not a it's not a I don't want to use I'm trying to think of a word that isn't like normal it's not an ideal dynamic to exist within
1: no school is really socially dysfunctional
0: yeah yeah. And, it, and, and it replicates
1: sorry. these authoritarian structures that we we're all trying to get away from.
0: Yeah, totally. And it feels like that's a whole other conversation in itself. But one of the things I'm really interested to hear from um, is or to hear about is what your relationship with being queer has been like. I know before we started recording, you mentioned that you've always kind of, it's never been a secret that you were bisexual or queer. Um, and obviously now being in a queer relationship and living a very openly queer life I wonder what that's been like for you
1: oh it's amazing (laughs) (laughs) yeah um I guess yeah and I never thought I was straight that just always seemed like a really confusing idea to me as soon as I knew that that was a concept I was like oh well that's not me (laughs) (laughs) um yeah yeah it's um and I think I really like, when I was younger, I was very open to all kinds of relationships, but like it's just too easy to fall into a straight relationship. Like it's just too easy. and um, it just kept happening to me again and again. And I actually met my kid's dad. Um, when we met, I'd explicitly moved to Brighton. <laughs> so <laughs> the <laughs> express purpose of maybe living a more queer life and uh, then met my kid's dad two weeks later so my plan utterly utterly failed (laughs) (laughs) but then um but then actually when we split up and I I made a decision I just said I'm not I'm not dating men anymore I just don't want to I've just yeah I've tried that and it's um it's just not for me (laughs) so it was a real conscious decision and once I'd drawn, drawn that line in the sand it was
0: much easier that's really cool and it's so true that it is so easy like if if you were to go on dating apps or anywhere that you might potentially meet people it is much easier to get into straight relationships um and how did you navigate that like did you i don't know do you have any tips <laughs> um
1: i just went to queer things so i just i just i i just started like just meeting, going to queer events, meeting queer people. Um, uh, I very briefly explored like online dating, but it was just disastrous. I had a really, really bad date with someone once and we ended up having an argument. In fact, that's the only Tinder date I've ever had and it was an absolute disaster. Um, We had an argument because um, she thought that the way to fix all of society's problems was to um, take um, all the kids away from rich people and give them to poor people to look after. Wow. Yeah. And uh, and I disagreed with this as a, <laughs> as a solution. And um, and she just wouldn't let it go. Like, I tried to kind of drop the conversation and we went something else, but she just wouldn't let it drop. So, yeah.
0: Wow. I don't even know what to say to that. I can't even think in what way that would be helpful. <laughs>
1: Yeah,
0: wow. I know. <laughs> okay, yeah, that does not sound like the best date. <laughs> um, just being in queer community, that's something that can feel quite difficult right now because there's quite a lack of like in-person spaces at the moment. Um, but when things are up and running, you're really involved with um, the queer community in terms of performance and being a drag king. So it'd be really cool to hear more about that.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I don't actually I've, I've never done a huge amount of performing because I've got I've got a lot of other stuff going on. Um, but I do enjoy it when I do get to do it. I'm um, I, I actually more involved these days on the production and stage managing side of things, um, which I really enjoy. I miss I don't really miss performing that much, but I really miss stage managing. It's just the best managing um uh, a stage manager of Bristol boys which is the drag king night in bristol and it's absolutely brilliant and if you ever get a chance to you should definitely come along to a show
0: yeah i'd really love to see it <laughs> uh and my
1: partner and i run a night called scritch which is a queer open mic night the whole idea is that it's like a very much a community night it's um it's it's just you know donations only um and anyone can perform and it's just it's Really wholesome. Sometimes my eldest comes along and helps stage manage, which is really lovely. That's so cool. (laughs) It's really
0: nice. And where did stage managing come from? Is it something that you did before? Like, do you have experience in that, or is it just something you've got into through community? Yeah,
1: accidentally, completely accidentally. So my partner is the producer of Brizzle Boys, is the co-producer of Brizzle Boys, and um, the show was growing really fast, and they the um them and their co-producer were really struggling to um produce host and stage manage so I just started I just started helping really and then they offered to make it official so
0: that's really cool and what do you love about that environment are there any things for people who haven't experienced what drag or queer performance is like that you would sort of say to them
1: well it's really subversive, which I love it's like it's often really political. One of the best shows ever was um, actually on the night of the last general election and it was um, it just so happened that the place the venue we were using was actually a polling station as well and, <laughs> <laughs> and they asked us to um, try and keep it non-political,
0: which was hilarious <laughs> <laughs> and impossible I'd imagine
1: <laughs> oh. So, um, um, I don't know if you know Chio. Do you know Chio? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, So Chio was performing that night. That was on the night of a general election, there was absolutely no chance of us not being political. (laughs) Um, so yeah, that was absolutely brilliant. What I love about it is that you get to hang out with the performers and you get to know them, you get to see them backstage and it's just a real camaraderie about it. It's so nice. Um, and you get to see the show you get to chat to people but you've also got a job to do as well which is really nice so it's nice to actually be busy and and it's uh, it's just brilliant um and then I also get to be well they call me the upstage manager actually (laughs) 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 because I also get to sneak onto stage and do stupid stuff
0: that's Um, cool
1: with low expectations because you know it's not an act so it's fine
0: that's so great. And yeah, I think it's so hard to describe what that is like, but I think sub- subversive is such a good word. Just yeah, it's so great being in a room with people who, for example, are like all understand pronouns or who all understand um what gender queerness can look like and so many other things. It's so great.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's I always come away from those nights absolutely buzzing and often, you know, when we start I'm, I I it's often I've been at work in the day or I've been you know I'm often quite tired and feeling quite low energy but by the end of the night I'm always absolutely buzzing
0: yeah it's really hard to sleep when you get home I think yeah. <laughs> I definitely have had that experience <laughs> just popping in with your episodely reminder to take a few breaths have some water and bring yourself back into the present moment if you feel you've drifted off somewhat perhaps you want to have a look around the room maybe bring your focus to the soles of your feet And just feel how you're held and supported by the earth below you, just taking a few deep breaths into that. And while you do that I just wanted to let you know that every month I send out a newsletter and in that newsletter is all kinds of cool stuff for um well recommendations of cool stuff that you might be interested in, cool people doing cool things, how many times can I fit the word cool into a sentence um <laughs> and what else is in there. So normally there is stuff related to people who are part of Queers & Co so that could be guests from previous episodes or it could be members of the Facebook group. If you would like to receive my newsletter then all you need to do is head along to my website gemkennedy.com and you'll see a box at the bottom of each page where you can sign up. Otherwise you can drop me your email through Instagram if that's easier at the kennedy, and I'll add you onto the list and at the end of every month I send out a newsletter with all of the things that I want to share and there's also some prompts and some questions in there to get you reflecting on maybe what you would like to leave behind in the current month and take forward into the next one and all sorts of other stuff so now i'll let you get back to listening to artemis yeah and thinking about drag you said that you don't really perform that often um but i wonder what your experience has been kind of doing drag and how it might have changed your relationship with your body as you've kind of gone through that process yeah for sure
1: definitely like the influence of queerness and drag on how I feel about my body has been huge um I, I I got into drag um partly from going to shows really um and then I decided to do a drag king workshop and just had a great time really enjoyed like playing with gender and uh, really I I've, I mean I've always loved performing anyway that's always something that I've enjoy always enjoyed being on stage and it brought together so many of my interests I love the fact that you get to make your own costumes as well because I really like making things so it's like the fact that you get to do a bit of everything you also write you're writing it and you're performing it and you're making all the props it's just it feels like it just it, it ticks so many of my boxes um but in terms of my body um yeah like so many people I didn't have a great relationship with my body for most of my adult life um, and going up on stage a lot of my acts do involve some level of nudity or taking off clothes which is bizarre I don't really know why and perhaps it's because that's what I needed them to do actually um, and being in drag allowed me to do that in a way that I didn't feel self-conscious at all which is amazing <laughs> and I think because I now see because I've I've had this had this realization that I see my body now through the eyes of a queer person and because I know how I see other people's bodies and there's been this recognition of like I don't judge other people's bodies in the way that I think other people are judging mine
0: yeah that's so fascinating and if you had to kind of speak to that like what are the ways that you what are the ways that might have shifted um in you know when you look at a queer person's body now what what might you think that you might not have thought before
1: well it's not it's not that I think because I it's this recognition that I don't have to uphold these like conventional beauty standards because that's not necessarily what I personally think is attractive anyway and just this appreciation of bodies in general and them being like just all bodies being good bodies basically and that recognition of that that humanity that deep humanity of like you're a person and I think that you're beautiful like for being a human being it's um it's just something that's really it's really deep and really profound it's um yeah I don't know I I think I don't think I've particularly ever judged other people's bodies that much but I think I've judged my own and assumed other people were judging my judging my body <laughs> in that way. Um and I realized that I just don't even if they are I just don't have to care about that because
0: well they're just wrong. Yeah, that's a huge shift, isn't it? I think um that's definitely been a realization for me as well thinking about um expending a lot of energy on thinking about what other people think of my body but realizing that I don't have those thoughts about other people's bodies like I'm not looking at them thinking oh this has changed or they look different in this way since I saw them last like I really don't care
1: Mm -hmm.
0: um but I didn't or haven't really held myself to those same standards at times and that yeah that's quite a um what's the word it's quite a contradiction I guess to hold or to almost like hold ourselves to higher standards than we hold other people
1: yeah totally yeah absolutely absolutely
0: Yeah. And would you say that there's anything in particular, like for some people that's coming across, um, I don't know, body liberation or fat activism, or for other people, it might be just, I don't know, working out for themselves. How has that come about for you? Is it really just being in queer community or are there other ways as well? Yeah, mostly queer queer
1: community. Yeah. And having different stories, just hearing different stories um, about like how people think about bodies has been really empowering but I think also like it is also being in a queer relationship as well and like and and like and really thinking about I think because I was so closed off, off from that for such a long time because I was with I was with my kid's dad and that was it was it was generally a pretty good relationship and I was not really interested in other like relationships with other people so I wasn't really looking at them like that anyway mm-hmm. and then sort of coming back into this world of like oh other people are like sexual beings and and then kind of thinking oh well actually you know I don't like conventional beauty standards aren't something that actually appeals to me very much and i, I like my my tastes are quite different from that and that's that's okay (laughs) yeah um yeah it was very internal I guess but then yeah the stories from other queer people were very powerful as well
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and I think there's definitely something around like the more the more different types of bodies different people different life you know histories and all kinds of things that you're exposed to I definitely think we're able to like broaden how we feel about things I think if people are really existing within like diet culture and thinking they need to they need to ascribe to those like beauty standards then it can feel like it's like that everywhere or like it it feels really isolating um And I think being out of that, and I guess that applies to other things as well, like about what relationships look like or what parenting looks like, or, you know, there's so many aspects that once you move outside of that, like traditional, this is the way things are done, there's so many more possibilities.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's very liberating.
0: Yeah, it really is. Yeah. And I wonder if there are any other areas when you think about like applying that other parts of your life maybe we've talked about bodies are there any others that you um think of where it comes up probably most areas I guess like in terms of
1: just thinking about um like what's important to me rather than what's like high status in society like what's considered important and that's a sort of I I suppose a, a political queerness, I guess which is like just you know working out what is important to me and what I enjoy and what I like doing and that that doesn't have to be something that everyone else does. So I don't, I'm, I'm not particularly into going on holiday. <laughs> like I find it's just not something that's that important to me, but it's such a high status thing. You're supposed to want to go on holiday. Whereas for me, it's always been really important that I enjoy my life so I don't need to get away from it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's so true. I, the amount of people on dating apps who talk about one of their hobbies as being travel and that's lovely if people enjoy travel, but like for all kinds of reasons, that isn't ideal. Like it's not ideal to fly around the world and, um, you know, have to earn potentially lots of money so that you're able to do those things. There is something about like really creating a life that you want to live. So you're not needing to holiday from it.
1: Yeah, and also I I feel like I do like going to other places, but what I try to do now is I only go to places where I know someone who lives there or I go with someone who's from there. And then you have a much richer experience and going there for connection rather than going there for, I don't know, just to get drunk in another place.
0: Yeah, yeah, so true. Yeah. And one of the things that made me realize that I was really happy and kind of recently was I used to have dreams always of moving away, like moving to a different country or living a different life. And I guess that's kind of inspired in a way by like mainstream television, right? Like we're constantly being sold this, like you should, I don't know, build your own house or um, go and sail around the world or whatever it is. And actually, um, I realise that I don't have that anymore. Like, I really love my life. And there are things that are challenging and difficult, but I don't want to escape from them. Um, yeah, that's really cool.
1: I, I suppose also, like, my, I suppose my relationship with my children as well, definitely, like, for sure. And for me, it feels so empowering for them to know that they're growing up Um in a family where they know that whoever they are they'll be accepted and for me that feels so important because lots of young people just don't have that and they'll never have to they'll never have to come out like like who they are is always just going to be okay
0: yeah absolutely taking away all of that anxiety and everything
1: yeah
0: yeah and it kind of brings me back to thinking about self-direction because that idea of um sort of rediscovering with queering things i guess that idea of rediscovering what it is that we like or how we can think about things differently really that is like an innate thing that we would have been able to do had we not been um brought up in our you know in the society the way is it, the way it is with patriarchy with you know all of the systems that exist already um and that's been something that for me being at the cabin has been huge like actually thinking about what I want to do with my time or what do I enjoy and now like having every other weekend without the children in the beginning i was literally just walking around the house being like i've no idea <laughs> even though i had interests like really it was work or netflix like i don't really know what else i was supposed to be doing um but if we'd never lost that, like if that had never been kind of taken away, then self-direction would have just been a thing all along. Totally. I, I kind of feel like I feel
1: so lucky. Like I've got time with my kids, really good quality time with my kids. And I've got time without my kids as well. And yeah. I feel like that's kind of ideal. I, I I sort of feel like nobody should have kids with their partner. <laughs> <laughs> you should just find someone you get on really well with and have really good shared
0: values and just co-parent I just think it's just the dream yeah and it really struck me when um I separated from the children's dad that it took that for me to get time to myself it doesn't make sense that actually like being in a relationship where you would think that the um you know there's two people to do the childcare and you know all of the things that come with that but actually it's only when you separate that then you get space and time it doesn't make any sense yeah because you're always on
1: call you're always on call like even when you're not directly doing something actively engaging with them you're always on call like it's like 24 7 and I feel I really feel for all of the single parents in in lockdown particularly like how hard that must have been to literally Mm -hmm. just have no time to yourself whatsoever it's very intense
0: yeah it's a lot and I think that's a lot um or has a lot to do with why people often don't consider home education because even if they maybe could make their lives work the thought of being with their children a lot feels really difficult to a lot of people and like something they're not really interested in doing
1: yeah, and I think that's totally fair enough. Like not everyone mm. wants to be a parent full time. And I think like this is a symptom of us having lost communities, basically, because of, like children in the past would have very much been brought up by a community rather than by a, a single family and that would have been really shared and people who are more interested in being like interacting with children could have done that and people who are less interested could have stepped back, whether they were parents yeah. like biological parents or not, and that would have like that feels a lot more healthy to me really so I I suppose that's a bit of an influence for the garden too is it's a community like rather than you know oh yeah rather than necessarily you know we stay away from school terminology completely for many many reasons Um, but partly because it is just ideologically a completely different thing
0: yeah totally yeah and thinking about raising children in community there's not only is it it's so much better in so many ways. <laughs> like it's better for um, the children. They have interactions with lots of different people. I don't mean, you know, not like hundreds of people, but I'm thinking about my children who spend time with their granny, for example, one day a week, and then obviously are with their dad um, and with me. And then obviously going to the cabin, the load is shared a lot more. Whereas um, in conventional parenting, I guess there's like maybe one parent that goes to work full time and the other parent is responsible for looking after the children all the time when they're not there it's a it's a lot isn't it
1: yeah it really is I think I mean we have quite a lot of single parent and low-income families at the garden um and one of the reasons that we exist is so people who wouldn't otherwise be able to home educate can do it because yeah otherwise you don't like some people can't work and other people just really need more time to themselves so it just makes so much sense
0: yeah. And this makes me think then of universal basic income and the project that you're working on. Check out the segue. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> you are co-founder of UBI Lab Bristol and it'll be great to hear more about that and what that project has been like so far.
1: Yeah, sure. So last summer I was um, oh, I was having a conversation with somebody about, like I, I'd, I'd got a new Facebook friend who, who has um, who's like an, uh, an older person she has been involved in self-directed education for a really, really long time. And she was telling me uh, about UBI because she's really passionate about UBI. And um, she suggested I have a look at the UBI lab network. And I did. I had, and it's this network of UBI labs all over the world, but particularly in this country. It was started in Sheffield. And I couldn't believe that there wasn't one in Bristol. It just seemed absolutely wild because of all the places where universal basic income would be would be very popular is bristol um so i messaged the ubi lab network saying hey i'd love to start a lab in in bristol and it just so happened that that very day massive attack had released a track all about ubi and so um johnny at the ubi lab network got really excited and said yeah brilliant okay great let's um let's chat let's talk let's let's figure out how we're going to do this um yeah so we've got a petition at the moment um which i'll send you the link for yes that is trying to get 3500 signatures which means the council has to debate it uh, on whether we uh, are supportive as um as, as the city of bristol is supportive of a ubi trial here which would be really cool and i think one of the reasons why i'm so passionate about it is because i very much see that there's a potential symbiosis between UBI and self-directed education I feel like they need each other I had a really interesting conversation with someone from the network last year who told me that he thought that one of the biggest challenges of universal basic income was the potential mental health crisis from people who just didn't know what to do with their lives if they weren't working all the time and or working for money and being told what to do and it was a light bulb moment because I realized that that's because they haven't ever had enough time being self-directed, you don't know what to do with your life. You don't know what you enjoy doing, what you're really passionate about. So, the UBI to be successful needs self-directed education, and obviously UBI supports self-directed education because at the moment people's options are really limited. Particularly if you don't have a lot of funds, it's quite yeah, it's quite challenging to provide self-directed education. So it would support that. and Recognise the unpaid care that goes into that.
0: Yeah. And if anyone hasn't heard of UBI or isn't entirely sure, like what would be the benefits of it? How would you describe it?
1: So UBI is a unconditional regular payment made to everybody without exception. Um, and um, it would replace the benefit system, essentially, because there's a lot of issues with the benefit system as it is. It's really bureaucratic when it doesn't need to be it's really stigmatizing and humiliating it's a really unpleasant process um and deliberately so to put people off from claiming it but on the with the idea that if you give people money that they just don't want to work Whereas, uh, what we've seen from a recent trial from Finland is that actually it increased employment. People actually did more if they had that, which actually, if you, <laughs> and it all comes back to the same ideas as self directed education. It's all part of the same philosophy, basically, because um, we know from, for example, self determination theory that people are actually not very motivated by carrot and stick they're motivated internally by their internal processes and what they're passionate about people do great things from their passions not because they've been rewarded or punished into into doing it um there there was a study last year in the uk showing that we could eliminate absolute poverty in this country for a ubi costing less than the current benefit system
0: wow that's amazing and that would that is taking into account like paying every person in the population not just people who are on benefits
1: everyone gets it and if people get it and don't need it then it's easily uh, you can easily get it back through the taxation system we've got a really effective and reasonably efficient taxation system so anybody who doesn't need it it would just come back so
0: that's Mm. fine that's amazing there's it just boggles my mind that then that wouldn't be a no-brainer like why would you not just do that then well, it's,
1: the only reason is ideology. There are mm-hmm. no actual justifiable reasons not to. It's just ideological. It's, I think, yeah. the, it's this it's this fundamental battle for the soul of humanity, which is people who believe, um, like, who, people who have faith in humanity and people who don't.
0: Yeah, because if you've been brought up in in the education system and you've been taught to believe that like you need to be coerced and sort of pushed into doing things and the only way that you'll succeed is by like doing something other people expect you to do rather than what makes you feel good or what is your passion then it totally makes sense that you would also then apply that to everyone else and think that people would be lazy and they wouldn't work if they weren't you know if they didn't have to or all of those kinds of things it's just Yeah that's really interesting to think about there's no actual practical reasons why that isn't a good idea it's really just people mistrusting each other and um, yeah thinking that people need to be coerced into doing things.
1: And they don't like the idea of people getting something it's this misplaced sense of fairness and justice that if I you know why should someone get money if they're not they haven't earned it. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, we live in a very unfair world as it is. It's already very unequal and very unfair. You know, it's, it's it's not justifiable that you have people earning, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds a year and some people who can't afford to put food on the table. That's
0: not fair. That's not okay. No, no. And this, I guess, um, thinking about the US, for example, the idea of like, if you can just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, if you just work harder or you just do whatever then you'll be fine there's that whole the way that I guess like benefits and working culture in the UK has been portrayed is like it's just because you're not doing it hard enough you're lazy um I've read a really I can't remember the name of it now so it's not really helpful there's a really great book about how um basically a disability rights to talks about how um the benefit system has been meant and the press has kind of angled for people on benefits to be portrayed in a certain way um and it's just not true like it really isn't that isn't the case
1: yeah absolutely yeah absolutely it absolutely is it's just it's it's really outrageous you've got you know you've got a situation where um so in terms of school what one of the things that keeps being trotted out again and again is that um, there's a link between doing well at school and then being successful in life. But it's 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 not that straightforward. What you've got is you've got some people who start off school from a very privileged position and those people then tend to do well at school because they've got lots of advantages they find it easier to adapt to this system that I personally don't think is ideal for anybody. Like some people survive it, but I don't think anyone is truly thriving in schools as they are now. Mm -hmm. And, um, but the ones who have the most advantages and um, the most comfortable lives and less, you know, less disadvantage, they're going to do better at school. And then they end up being successful as adults, but it's not necessarily anything to do with success at school. They have that privilege. It's, it's a direct result of the privilege they had. And that's what's causing their success later. And in fact, actually, we can see that because inequality is growing in this country, it's not decreasing. Schooling is, is fueling inequality. Um, it's not. So this idea of it as being an equaliser is absolute nonsense. I get really frustrated, particularly when I hear lots of people on in left wing politics saying, talking about school as if it is an equaliser and saying that mm-hmm. the answer to, you know, this lost learning idea is that what, what poor kids need is more school, which is just completely the opposite of what they need as far as I'm concerned
0: yeah and also I guess that school is so normalized like people don't because we've very focused on like our generation or a couple of generations before we don't realize that like it hasn't always been this way and school is a relatively recent development in terms of like our social history
1: yeah and it it created like we can see it you can see it from um from colonial history as well so when when we've imposed compulsory schooling in areas um it will make like some people will help get an advantage over others and they might go off to university in a different country um and they might do very well for themselves but actually it makes everybody else relatively poorer mm-hmm. so it actually creates more inequality it doesn't decrease yeah. it at all
0: and the fact that it was used as a colonization tool right like yeah. children were separated from their parents and yeah a
1: yeah, lot absolutely. of
0: like um culture and tradition was actually lost because they were schooled in a way that wasn't in alignment with yeah their background and where they where they came from
1: yeah yeah no exactly well the whole the whole like whole setup of it is so problematic like it's basically saying and particularly education in this country as it is now and it's very deliberately designed that way um um, Michael Gove and Dominic Cummings actually Dominic Cummings is more the architect than Gove Gove was just the person who implemented it, it was actually Dominic Cummings who really designed it. it was really keen on this US academic called E.D. Hirsch um, who and some very problematic research that was basically a circular argument saying that poor black Americans um, don't have good language skills therefore we're going to test them on the basis of um, the like, Comparing them to white middle class families and how their language, but it was a circular argument. It's on the assumption that their language skills are somehow worse. Mm -hmm. But there's, if you look at, if you take any like objective measure, like the richness of the language, the number of words used, there's that, that's not the case. There's no, it's just different language. But it's this assumption that white middle class culture is just the ideal culture, particularly male white middle class culture. Yeah. Wealthy. It's just, it's, it's, it's all based on advantaging the people like giving further advantage to the people who already have the most privilege in society it's like school is essentially just grading people according to privilege as far mm. as I'm concerned
0: yeah that's so interesting and yeah <laughs> wow um yeah and I guess like I'm thinking about people that are listening to this Say this may be quite a new concept to them if they're not um if they're not aware of that, or maybe they're kind of a a bit like with the children's rights stuff that we talked about before, perhaps um, are really engaged with social justice stuff, but aren't really understanding or not really knowledgeable about like how it works with schools and and children's rights stuff. And I wonder if there's like any place or places that you might, recommend people direct their attention so like any resources or any um I don't know any particular people talking about this other than you obviously
1: yeah absolutely um so I recently um read a book actually it's weird to say I read it because I didn't a friend of mine uh started a book club where he reads uh, books every evening and he'll read a chapter of each book every evening and I just tune in and listen it's he's got this really wow. lovely voice um he's a local queer he's also a show producer actually he's
0: really oh. nice
1: um he's moving to Wales which I'll never forgive him for
0: Oh,
1: <laughs> so well. but he's been reading this book club he's got this really amazing voice as well and uh he was reading resisting illegitimate authority by Bruce Levine which I'd hugely recommend it's absolutely brilliant and there's a whole section of parenting in schools that I just that, through the whole way through the book I was I was such a keyboard warrior I was just like yeah and this and then this and this and this and one of the things that really surprised my friend when he was reading he's saying oh are rewards coercion and I was like yeah they definitely are coercion like I know they might be nice coercion but they're still coercion
0: mm-hmm Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. That sounds like a great book. And also just such a great idea to like read a chapter every evening and people can tune in. I love that.
1: So lovely. So lovely. The other person I'd really recommend people check out, um, Akilah Akilah Richards. Um, It's Akilah S. Richards, I think. But uh, um, she has a website and a podcast actually called Fair of the Free Child, which is absolutely amazing. and, And that's particularly good for Uh, people interested in um sort of how it relates to anti-racism particularly
0: Mm -hmm. great thank you and i think this leads us on nicely then to thinking about um what you are enjoying at the moment other than these really interesting sounding resources
1: Um, well the thing i really want to recommend is kith by jay griffiths i so years and years ago long before i started the garden i was decorating my house and. I was listening to a lot of podcasts at the time and there was an RSA talk with Jay Griffiths about her new book Kith and I just I was in floods of tears through the whole thing she talks a lot about she puts a lot of historical political context into why we are in the situation we are now with children's rights and talks a lot about land rights and goes back to the the enclosures and about how since the enclosures children's rights have just particularly in terms of like their ability to just move freely in the world has just shrunk and shrunk and the world has just shrunk and shrunk and shrunk until it's so small now their radius of, of freedom that they're allowed is just tiny um, mm-hmm. when actually we live in a safe statistically we live in a safer world than than the safer society than ever but children's rights and freedoms have just been eroded so far
0: that's so interesting yeah I hadn't heard of that so I'll definitely check that out as well and um, thank you and where can people come and check you out
1: I've got um the garden website the gardenbristol.org is um you can um when we're doing shows again you can come and see the Boys show or a script show in Bristol it would be that would be really lovely um where else am I where do I exist <laughs> um <laughs> uh, oh ubi lab bristol as well we're on, we're on twitter all these things are on twitter as well
0: so great yeah and we'll definitely share the petition and hopefully get some more people yeah, to great. sign it as well awesome um yeah i'm conscious of time and i feel like i could have asked you lots of lots of things it feels like this it's almost like um well when i said that i wanted to talk to you it feels like a, co- a combination of all the things that i'm really interested in so it's been really great to have a chat um yeah and Thank is there any Oh, not at all. (laughs) Is there anything that that you wanted to finish on? Like, I don't know why, but I'm getting a sense that I should ask that question. Is there anything that you think we haven't mentioned that would be good to talk about?
1: Um, Only that I think there's lots of people at the moment who are interested in social justice. Lots of people who are aware of problems in the world in a way that maybe we haven't been before. They're at the forefront of our minds. And it's I think there is an opportunity at the moment particularly because we're in a time of a lot of upheaval for, to really come together and like push things forward and make change happen and so I just really want to encourage everyone who's involved in work like this to to think about ways we can connect and find our shared values and find ways to come together and work with each other um because I think we've we've got we're really good at sort of picking problems with things, but actually what we need to do is find our shared values and find how we can come together and and make magical things happen.
0: yeah, that's so beautiful and actually putting things into practice rather than talking about you know all of the things that are wrong places like the garden actually you know demonstrating how that works in real life rather than just sitting around chatting about it forever it's not going to get anything changed. yeah, cool thank you so much Artemis. Ah oh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to another episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to Artemis as much as I enjoyed chatting to them. As always, if you'd like to check out their work, please do head to the show notes where you'll find all of the links to discover them in all of the places. Also, if you would like to support the UBI uh, Bristol petition, then please do go ahead and sign that. The link is also there for you. And that's all from me for this week. I hope you have a good week and fingers crossed there will be some sunshine if you're in the UK and it won't rain for a million years.